Hello everyone, this is Yulia Strate. Today I will be speaking with Dr. Jonathan Clark. Dr. Clark is an exploration geologist, researcher, and teacher. He has been interested in Mars since he was about 10 years old, before people even walked on the moon. Since finding out about the Mars Society Australia in 2001, he has taken part in six expeditions to inland Australia, one to New Zealand, one to India, and three MDRS rotations. His Martian interests include Martian geology, terrestrial analogues, astrobiology, exploration technologies, mission architectures, and human factors. He currently serves as president of Mars Society Australia, is on the Mars Society International Steering Committee, and is director of science at MDRS. On this Skills for Mars episode, we talk about the preparation and research that are taking place here on Earth to get ready to face this most extraordinary adventure, setting up a new home on Mars. We touch on Mars analog sites, EVAs, working in isolated environments, testing spacesuits, team formation, leadership, and multidisciplinarity, tough schedules and hard work, trust, friendship, courage, endurance, emotional intelligence, problem-solving, creativity, and reinvention. If you do find these types of conversation useful, you can support the podcast by subscribing to it. To access the video podcast and subscribe for free to my YouTube channel, go to youtube.com, type in Skills for Mars, and hit the subscribe button. Alternatively, you can go to my website, yuleistrata.com forward slash skills for Mars and click the YouTube confirm your subscription button. And now I give you Dr. Jonathan Clark. Three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Skills for Mars podcast. Today, we're welcoming Dr. Jonathan Clark who is the president of the Mars Society from Australia. John, welcome to the podcast. I cannot tell you how happy I am to have you here and how excited because Mars is one of my passions as well. So uh, from remote, way more remote than you are, but it's something uh, yeah, I've been looking up to. <laughs> well, I'm very glad to be here as well. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. Um, now, I told you I have to. I have to admit I've been doing kind of kind of a lot of reading on um, your 160 Mars uh, program, uh, looking at uh, at uh, your journals and all of that, and it's quite quite fascinating. So towards the end, I would definitely if I would like to share that with everyone. But before we talk about Mars, before we talk uh, geology, your passions and your and your work, can you tell? everyone a bit about yourself and uh, how you got to do what you're doing? Hmm. Well, ever since I was old enough to look at books, I've been fascinated with uh, space exploration, astronomy, uh, other planets. And um, I was growing up in the, the era of the Apollo program, uh, the very first crewed mission I can remember was Gemini 3, the first uh, crewed Gemini mission. Uh, the first uh, exploration mission I can remember was uh, Luna 9, uh, the first uh, successful uh, unmanned landing on the moon. Um, and, of course, I can remember Apollo 11 and all, of, all the Apollo missions, and uh, where possible I uh, listened to them live on the radio. So I've always been interested in that. And um, unfortunately, I'll backtrack. Um, and so when I was in high school, I built models of spacecraft that went to Mars, would you know, one day go to Mars with people. Um, I read a lot of science fiction, as I still do. 
Uh, and um, I was working towards becoming an astronomer. But by the time I was at the end of my high school, I had to realize that my mathematics was just not good enough to be astronomy. Uh, but I'd realized that I could actually study, if you like, the, uh, the star the planet that I live on. And so uh, when I was at university, I studied geology, and um, that took me on a career all over the world. So I, I tell people I've worked on five continents and three oceans uh, as a mineral exploration uh, geologist, as, a, as an academic, as a government geologist, uh, and I've you know, taught in several universities. But always in the back of my mind, there was this interest in, in Mars in, in, and in particular and planetary exploration in general. And then back in 2001, I was surfing the net at work, as you do, and uh, I came across uh, Mars Society Australia. And I thought, oh, that looks interesting. And so I uh, looked at the page and discovered that you know, this was a grassroots organization where people could do things. And in fact, they were looking for someone uh, to lead a field trip through Central Australia to look at Mars analog sites. I thought I could do that. So after a little bit of inquiry and discovering there weren't some weird cult, uh, I joined the exploration, uh, the expedition of Jantamara that went to Central Australia looking for locations to set up uh, a Mars analog research station. And before I knew it, I was uh, running the Mars analog uh, project. I was on the Mars Society Australia's board of directors and the rest is history as they say <laughs> so so you've been already on about six missions right uh, i've been on quite a few uh, mars analog missions to uh, different stations mostly to mdrs but also to which is in utah uh, but also to fmars in the arctic and i've done quite a few other analog missions not to stations but where we're looking at places uh, around the world uh, which have features be their biological features or geological features that uh, can teach us about Mars. Uh, as for example, to Rotorua in New Zealand, to uh, Central Australia, to the Pilbara in Western Australia, with some of the oldest rocks on Earth, uh, also to Ladakh in uh, Northwest India, and to Lonar Impact Crater, which is also in India. Mm -hmm. uh, so are you planning yourself to go to Mars as well? <clears throat> that would be nice. Okay. Um, I'd like to think that at 61, I'm the perfect age to go to Mars. But uh, the reality is that uh, when we get to Mars, which might be in 10 years' time, but mm -hmm. perhaps 20 years' time, I'll be far too old. But hopefully I can still watch it on TV. Okay. Because I, I, what I read from uh, Musk, it, it looks like the 2033 they're planning to launch the missions, right? And uh, yeah, uh, start 20, the settlement. 2033 is a very good time to go to Mars because as uh, the Earth and Mars travel around the sun, um, every 26 months they line up and you can send a spacecraft from one to the other. And every 15 years, uh, the way they line up is really uh, very favorable and that's the best time to send a mission. Uh, and then uh, in between that time, it's uh, not so good. And 20, 20, 20, 33 is that. Uh, Elon Musk is talking about seeing people in you know, 2024. Um, uh, uh, I think he's trying to pull the wool over people's eyes, to be honest. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, what, what I like about him is that he's pushing things forward, at least uh, 
you have this uh, kind of a deadline that you have to get there. So um, yeah. yeah, it it might not be as bad. I, I I believe as well that maybe it's a bit too early, but hey, let's see what uh, what uh, he can do. So uh, have deadlines, um, yes. but yes, they can be uh, uh, unrealistic, and that tends to detract from your credibility. And uh, they're just some things that take time and getting ready for Mars, doing all the testing that you have to do uh, really will take a lot longer than two or three years. And this is uh, this is why I wanted to talk to you, not necessarily to talk about uh, the actual going to Mars, right, and how we are planning to travel and the technology and all of that, but mostly the skills and what it takes to be prepared to get there uh, so we can make it a success, right, rather than, rather than, a, than a failure. So when you think about preparing to go to Mars, how do you think about it? You guys from the Mars Society and people who are thinking about this there. So what's what's the preparation about? Sorry, could you say that again? Uh, yes. You got a bit faint there. Mm-hmm. So my question was, uh, what are we doing right now to prepare to go to Mars and to make this mission a success rather than a, than a failure? And what are you thinking about when you think about preparation? So what's... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm working on a number of projects. Uh, one of the, the biggest is uh, we've been trying for many years now to get an analog research station built here in Australia. Um, there's a number of, other than being very convenient for those of us who live in Australia, uh, it would be very useful to have a Mars analog station in the Southern Hemisphere so that when uh, it's summer in the Northern Hemisphere, people can come down here and uh, and work in our winter, which is generally the time we do most of our field work. Uh, also, it would be useful for people in other parts of the world, in Europe and North America, to be able to access a station uh, like the Australian one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, it's a very different design to the stations being built elsewhere, like high seas in Hawaii or uh, MDRS in Utah. It's uh, quite a different shape. And uh, it's very important that when we start designing things for Mars, we explore different concepts of how we build habitats, how we uh, design their interiors. And so that's something we can do. That's something I can do. Uh, We have a group over in Utah at the moment from Australia Society Australia. Uh, This is the second time we've had an expedition over there. And uh, they've been there for two weeks, and some of them will be there for another two weeks. And they're doing geology and life support systems, looking at uh, minimizing food waste, for example. Um, so these are, these are sort of projects you can do with relatively little resources, but can be, be very, very helpful in designing uh, the operational side of things, how people actually will live and work on Mars. Uh, so that's the two things that I'm involved in. Uh, I'm also working with people in India with uh, Amity University, which is a large private university there. They're looking at building their own Mars Analog Research Station in uh, Ladakh, which is the extreme northwest corner of India, uh, a high-altitude, cold desert. Uh, When you fly into Ladakh, you you get off your plane and there's 3,400 metres above sea level. Uh, They actually depressurise the plane so you can get out. Um, and then, you know, you're working at altitudes of four to 5,000 meters. So it's a, a remarkable environment. It's India, so people think it's hot, but it's actually very cold up there. The ground is frozen, uh, and, of course, there's not a lot of oxygen around. You've actually got to climatize the working there. So a very interesting environment. So that, that, that's a, a third area of work that I'm involved in in terms of preparing, to, preparing us to go to Mars. So for most of my audience is 
I believe, not used to the lingo, not used to the vocabulary, has never maybe read about uh, this analog missions for uh, Mars. So can you tell us a bit about what an analog mission consists of? What are you doing? How big the crew is? What are you trying to yeah, discover and explore while you're on the mission? What you're trying to test? Yeah, so, so what do I mean when I talk about a Mars analog research station or a Mars analog uh, mission? Well, an analog is a, a counterpart to, um, to something. We talk about an analog clock, for example. So that is a, a clock with, with hands on its face that tells us the time. It's um, a representation of the passing of time without actually being time itself. So a, an analog station is a, um, a simulated Mars station that ideally looks something like um, the sort of uh, Mars base, Mars station, that we would live on when people go to Mars. It's about the same shape, it's about the same size, uh, you have the same amount of people in there, and you can use it to explore the questions that uh, we need to answer for going to Mars, like how big does a station have to be? Um, is it better to have uh, people living over two or three decks or over one? Uh, so you can imagine living, is it better to live in something like a lighthouse uh, that's tall and thin, or something that's more like a an airliner that's uh, that's uh, low and long. Mm -hmm. uh, we can address things like uh, how many people do you send? Can we send four people, or is it better to have six, or should we go for an odd number of people, like five or seven? Uh, what sort of skills do they need to have? Uh, that's something else we can we can look at. Uh, how long can you spend each day working outside? Can you go outside every day, or is that just too much hard work. Because remember, when you're in a Mars analog station, you don't just open the door and walk outside. You put up a, a mock-up spacesuit, uh, which is um, a costume, but it's a realistic costume because there's a big bubble helmet and it got, it's got fans that pump air uh, through the helmet so you don't suffocate. You've got a water supply. You have a radio to talk to each other and back to, back to base. And... Um, uh, it's very heavy. Uh, the one we wore in Utah last time I was there weighed 17 kilos. So imagine, you know, walking with a 17 kilo backpack on your back. Uh, it's what you do on a hiking trip. Uh, but you don't just walk in it; you work. So imagine wearing a big backpack, 17 kilos, and then changing the tire of your car or doing some gardening. So that is what it's like to go on a simulated spacewalk or Mars walk from a Mars analog station. It's hard work, it's tiring, and uh, it may turn out that we can't do it every day. We might, might be able to do it only once every two or three days. These are the sort of questions we look at. So that's a Mars analog station. Um, I've been on about six expeditions so far, ranging in, in from a couple of weeks to three months, nearly three months. Um, and they're, they're great fun, they're, they're hard work, and we've learned a lot from them. Which was the, the most other kind of thing is sort of a Mars analog expedition. So okay. these are sort of things that you do to um, to places that in some way resemble Mars. Now, what does that mean? You know, Mars is its own planet, and if we could find places on Earth that were really like Mars, there wouldn't be much point going to Mars. But these are places that in some way have some aspect 
that can teach us about Mars, uh, whether it's to study their processes as a geologist, look for odd forms of life that might be living there, or simply because it's the kind of environment we can, te we can test our tools, our, our robots, our drill rigs. And uh, these sort of Mars analog expeditions we can do in many parts of the world. Uh, you can come to Australia. We do them in central Australia. Uh, you can go to Ladakh in northwest India, you know, this cold, high-altitude desert I mentioned earlier. We could go to the Arctic, to uh, Devon Island, or we could go to the Antarctic. And people do this. They, they take their equipment. They take their tools. They, they study these environments. And also they study how their tools work. You know, is it better to have a drill rig that uh, works in one particular way, is a particular side, or is it better to have a different design? And we can test all these questions much more easily than we can on Mars. Because if we send them to Mars without testing them, something's bound to grow, go wrong. As I'm sure they have gone on uh, missions as well. As I'm, I'm oh, yes. Sure so, for example, at the moment on Mars, there is a, um, a lander uh, called InSight. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a geophysical observatory that's landed on Mars uh, last year, I think it was, um, or, yep, like late last year. And the idea was it would uh, study Martian earthquakes. It would measure the amount of heat that's flowing out of the ground. You know, Mars' uh, core is hot, like our core, and heat gradually leaks out, and they wanted to measure how much uh, was getting, uh, getting out because that tells us what the inside of Mars is like. Uh, it was also going to measure the weather station. Well, the weather station is working fine. The seismometer measuring earthquakes is working fine. But the heat flow probe has been really embarrassing. So they had a little a tool called a mole, which was like a, um, a rod that pushed itself down into the ground. And they tested on Earth, and it worked fine. They set it up on Mars, and, well, first of all, it started going in, and then it started going sideways. So they stopped and did experiments and started up again, went a bit further, and then it started coming back out of the hole, which was really bad. So at the moment, it's sort of sitting there more than halfway out of the hole, and uh, the, the crew are trying to work out, on Earth, are trying to work out uh, how to save this, pro uh, save this uh, project if they can. Yes, indeed challenging. What was uh, one uh, out of the six missions you've been uh, into because it's kind of hard for us to sh change what's happening right now on Mars. But out of the six you've been to, I'd be quite interested to understand which was, from your point of view, the most challenging one. One that you think was, hey, we really had a lot of struggle. We really had to push through, but maybe in the end we made it and it was hmm. successful. Well, that's a hard one to answer because in my work as a geologist, I've worked in all sorts of fairly demanding uh, places. Uh, so, you know, I've done, I've worked in, in Central Australia, I've worked in the Atacama Desert, I've been on various marine cruises, I've uh, done work on the seafloor while I've been diving. So, working in extreme, in relatively ex extreme environments uh, is what I do. And I enjoy it. That's why one of the reasons I'm a geologist, because I get paid to do things that uh, other people uh, mightn't get the chance to do. Uh, but certainly the uh, 2017 expedition to Devon Island uh, was the most challenging. Uh, I enjoyed it immensely, but it's in the Arctic. So uh, for those of your listeners who know something of the geography, I flew to, I flew to San Francisco. Where I caught up with friends of mine who worked for NASA there. 
And then it was about a two-hour flight, a two-and-a-half-hour flight from San Francisco to Edmonton, where they had the Winter Olympics many years ago. And then from there, it's another two, two-and-a-half hours to a small mining town called Yellowknife, which is almost in the Arctic. And then another two hours from there, right up into the real Arctic, to an island called Cornwallis Island and a tiny little uh, village called Resolute with only 200 people in it. And then, uh, and these are all in jet planes, 737. So, you know, fast, fast travel. Uh, and then when the weather was right, we got in a really little plane, a twin otter. It carries 12 people. It looks like a toy plane with big rubber tires. We loaded our stuff in it and then we flew for an hour and a half across to Devon Island and landed on the dirt, no runway just a bit of sloping ground that was sort of flat enough for the plane to land in. Uh, they pushed all of our stuff out the plane, you know, drums of fuel, um, quad bikes, uh, all, our, all of our luggage, and flew off and left us there. And we were there looking around thinking, oh, this is, this is interesting. This, this is, is uh, it's, uh, uninhabited, right, as far as I know. Uninhabited. It's the largest uninhabited island in the world. It's uh, almost as big as uh, as Ireland. Uh, so uh, quite a large island. No one there. Uh, occasional scientists visit there. Um, there's a little bit of wildlife, not much, and it's very barren. There's almost no plants, um, hardly any wild animals. Just occasionally you see birds and a very alien landscape. So from there, we had to, uh, we had to uh, uh, walk across to the station, which has been there for about uh, 15 or 16 years, uh, which looks like um, a giant uh, can, a giant tin of, of, of tuna. <laughs> and that's where we lived for, uh, for a month. And uh, inside that, there, there was um, you know, sleeping cabins and a, and a kitchen and a dining area and laboratory and workshops and toilets and showers and so on. Uh, but yes, you, you realize that if something went wrong, it might, you know, like you broke your leg, um, it might be two or three days, maybe five days for a plane could come and fly you out. So that focused your mind. Uh, the other thing is, of course, uh, when we went outside and on our simulated Mars walks, uh, two people would go out wearing the, the uh, simulated spacesuits. But a third person would always go with them without a spacesuit on, uh, carrying a shotgun, a loaded shotgun, because uh, there are polar bears on Devon Island. And uh, when they see you, they uh, they see you as food. And so there's food, always yeah. got to be someone on bear lookout and as bear guard. And so that was a interesting experience and <laughs> certainly out there. But uh, the six of us, we had a wonderful time. We uh, saw amazing things, the midnight sun. Uh, the whole uh, area on Devon Island we were in was a giant impact crater about 22 kilometers across, you know, a hole in the ground like we see on the moon that's formed by an asteroid crashing into the surface of the Earth. And this one landed about uh, 40 million years ago or, uh, or, or thereabouts. And so this enormous 22-kilometer diameter basin in the landscape with – uh, the sort of rocks that we'd expect to see and process you expect to see on Mars, and our tuna can parked up on the edge. And when the time came to uh, pack up, we you know we loaded everything back onto a twin otter, which uh, which came, and uh, it flew us out. We, we were supposed to do it all in one day, but halfway through, I got out first with uh, all the rubbish, 
Uh, and then uh, the weather changed and the other people were sort of stuck there for an extra night before they could fly out. So it's endurance, right? It's a lot of uh, isol is isolation. It's a lot of hard work. What, what else is it there uh, that, for, that, that is different than what we have to do on a normal job or uh, on just working yeah. on, in, yeah. Normal environment on and this. being sensible. You're always being aware. Look, if I'm if I'm out here, what could go wrong, and how do I make sure it doesn't? And if it does go wrong, what do I do? But really, the perhaps the biggest key is to be in a, be there with people you like, uh, that you trust, and that you love. You know that they, they are your crew becomes like your family. Um, uh, they're different from you. They have different interests and so on. But you've got to work together, uh, help each other. Um, who, you know, when they, when they have problems and they help you, and you have problems, and uh, look, these these people, I'll do it again with with that crew as well. Uh, they're a fantastic group. Do you know so each other? Group made it, made it possible. I, I definitely, and then then a lot of my questions are around the the team as well. And uh, to start with, do you know each other when you start these missions, or you know some people but other others not? Because sometimes I have the feeling when I when I read your journals that maybe some of you knew each other before or sp have spoken before, and some not. But I'm not sure. Well, the expedition to Devon Island was, was the second half of a of a longer project. Uh, so we had all been in uh, Utah mm -hmm. uh, for a three-month expedition at FMAS, at the MDRS station, DRS. pardon me, uh, beforehand. So we all knew each other really well from that. But before that, everybody knew at least one or two other people uh, on the expedition. So, for example, when we went to Utah, um, there, was, uh, there was myself, another Australian, um, Anna Lee, Mm -hmm. uh, so we so we work in the Mars Society together. So we knew each other quite well. We've been on expeditions to New Zealand uh, and to Ladakh, India. Um, there was another girl from India, Anushree. Uh, we knew her from Ladakh, uh, and although she hadn't been to MDRS before, she has spent uh, about two years providing uh, mission support. So she had a pretty good idea of how the place ran. And the other people, there was someone from France, uh, someone from Canada. From the, another one from the US, someone from Japan, someone from Russia. All of these people had been to MDRS before uh, as crews, sometimes with each other. So everybody knew at least one or two other people already from outside. And yeah, we, we clicked really well. How important do you and, think for the future, sorry? right? For How important do you think for the real Mars ex expeditions, how important do you think that people should know each other before and maybe have been to such simulated analog places before they go together on Mars? Is it important oh, or do you think this can be built? Absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. uh, so you'll be living for years on Mars with with these people. Um, and uh, yeah, for the, yeah, you, those in your audience who have been in share houses, you, you imagine spending two or three years with someone you really dislike. Or really annoys you, uh, and uh, doing that in a place where you can't move away. So it's really important that people can get get on. They can respect each other, um, even if they argue. They can argue in a way that's constructive and not uh, not destructive. And um, yeah, the way to train for that is for people to live and work together and go on um, 
yeah, expeditions together. So when people go to the International Space Station, um, they have spent ye- years working together in, in Houston, in Moscow. Uh, they do uh, intense uh, field training, not because when you're on the International Space Station, you need to know what it's like to live in the Arctic or go hiking through um, uh, the Ural Mountains or the Grand Canyon. But these sort of experiences allow people to bond and also say, well, look, I really like going with that person. But, you know, that person, they're very good, but they're not my sort of person, sort of person that I'd like to do this with. And people, yeah, like kids in a playground, they sort themselves up into compatible groups and um, uh, w- without, uh, without too much hassle. And we'll do the same with Mars. And um, people often say, well, what was it like? Did you argue? I say, no, we're good friends. And they say, well, what did you do? And you sort of you think they they imagine you sit there staring at each other for <laughs> hours on end, you know, waiting for someone to pick their nose or burp or something, and, and then you sort of you know grab them by the throat. It's not like that. You're working, you know, twelve hours a day, and and then you've got to have dinner, and then uh, you know you might have you know, an hour or so where you can listen to some music or read a book or watch a DVD or or something together, uh, and then you go to sleep. Uh, you, know, you are working really hard. You haven't got time to sit there, you know, glaring at each other. Um, <laughs> you have some funny, you have some funny ideas. What it's like? You actually wrote in one of the journals that what created tension was not so much the relationship between you, but mostly the relationship with the control, with the mission control. And then sometimes yes. tensions does arise. So how do you solve them when everyone, when everyone's spirits are up and, and hot and uh, they're more Latin than uh, out there in, uh, in Utah in the desert? How, how do you solve that and how do you calm everyone down? Because it does, I imagine it does take a toll on you and you get more tired in that isolated environment versus, yeah. This, is, this is a problem we've all had. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, most of us, yeah, if we're if we're in management, we think, oh, the people who work for us, gee, they they're really thick. They are. They don't do what they're told. They they don't understand the problems. And if we are the workers, we also management hasn't got a clue what's going on. Always. And of course, you know, people in the army, the you know, the soldiers say, yeah, you know, the generals don't understand what's going on, and they send us off in the wrong direction. Uh, you know, and uh, and the and the generals think, well, the you know, the soldiers are really incompetent, and so on. And the way we overcome come it on mission control is uh, these issues of mission control. It's the same thing. Uh, you've got to really put yourself in the other person's shoes. You've got to be very patient. You've got to communicate clearly. And uh, you've got to tolerate it. Mission control says, oh, look, these has to learn that these people are the ones on the ground and it's, it's their decision, it's their lives in the line, and we need to allow them to, to do that. And uh, the other people on the mission have to say, well, the you know, mission control, you know, they are there to make sure that we don't forget things, they're there to help us, and they can be annoying sometimes, but uh, really, we are all on the same team with the same goal. So, yeah, like everything else in life, patience and understanding and goodwill um, achieves a lot. You mentioned about the leadership and how does it work? Because I imagine 
some of the projects like geology, geology exploration projects that would be led by you or someone else doing geology, right? Uh, microbiology yeah. would be led by, by someone else, uh, maybe a maintenance by someone else. How do you switch from one person to another? How hard is it to do it? Where is it easy? How do you train to do that? Because why I'm asking is that it feels that you are able to do it quicker than we do it in, in a, a usual company. Here, mm. when someone oh, and you and you know it, when someone gets to power, they are the leader, and they should always be seen as leader. In very rare cases, and few people are able to flex and 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 change, right? And it's something you learn. But it feels like you are learning way quicker out there than we are doing here. It's just a feeling. Yeah, that's a very interesting question, and I think the answer will vary according to the sort of people you've got. Mm -hmm. And partly, I think, to the culture, because uh, different cultures, some cultures are very egalitarian and very consultative uh, and very relaxed about how they do things. Um, other cultures are a bit more hierarchical. Uh, and, you know, one person is in charge and the others do what he or she says. And it's not right or wrong. It's just, uh, different ways of people working together. And I think if people are happy to work with either of those, that's good. But there are some general uh, principles. I mean, first of all, should last two and a half years. To expect one person to be the leader the whole time uh, is a big ask. Um, so, yeah, the leaders, you know, if you have a nominated leader, uh, that leader has to be prepared to work consultatively with people. Um, at the same time, uh, there are often situations which um, you know you need someone to take leadership. So, for example, during landing on Mars, you know you you, know, you want the pilot to be in charge. You don't want the you know, the crew psychologist saying, "Well, I think you're showing a bit of stress there. You should lie down on the on the couch and and talk to talk to me about it." You know. The, Pilot has to be allowed to land the land the spacecraft. Um, if it's a medical emergency, um, obviously the the doctor is in charge. You don't want a mechanic saying, "Well, I think the you know the, that person's plumbing yes. needs to go together yes. in this way." Yeah? Shut up! Let the doctor do their job. Um, what if it's a general crisis so, where multiple skills and professions are involved? Did it ever? Hmm. Does it ever happen when? Someone becomes a leader because they can manage the situation and solve a problem more than more than because that they have they have a certain skill or uh, yeah knowledge to do it. That's usually not in a crisis situation. Mm -hmm. That sort of um, uh, tension would generally arise over competing use of resources. Like, look, I, I want to do an EVA, an EVA, a Mars walk to one particular location, and someone else says no, I want to go want to go together, um, and you get around that. As we do on Earth by by planning, mm -hmm. okay, we make sure that everybody gets enough of what they want in terms of the resources uh, to be satisfied with the outcome, and uh, you know you make sure you deal with people who are mature and sensible, and they're not going to be stubborn and pig-headed. And um, usually, you can you know work and negotiate your way around so that everybody is at least uh, reasonably happy. Uh, one thing one thing we found on previous trips that was useful was um, 
you, know, you do have an, a, a designated commander who sort of has to sort of have the big picture about where we're going, uh, you, know, you know, of the overall mission goals. But the day-to-day planning um, is, be- is often best done by other people. So we, we had someone we called the HAB NAG, okay. you know, the, the person whose job it was to make sure that for that day people got up on time. Uh, they're the one who put breakfast on the table. They they cooked the dinner. They made sure that people um, that they chaired the planning meetings, the discussion meetings, and that when it was time to go to bed, the people went to bed. You know, the hab nag, or the hab dad, or the hab uh, mother. Uh, you can call this person what you like. And we rotated around so that everybody got a chance to make sure that that whole crew uh, functioned, and that. That also meant that everybody felt that they had a say in what was going on. Um, it also meant that the, the commander was able to maintain the big picture focus uh, of what was happening uh, and it seemed to work quite well. Another thing I noticed, John, is that you are all multidisciplinary. You all have, uh, you may be a geologist, but you might uh, get to be an assistant for mechanics because you know a bit of engineering. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, microbiology and journalism at some point got together, right? Because uh, again, I was yeah. reading through your diaries. How are you all trained in multidisciplinary trained before you go on these missions or you learn on these missions a new skill? Well... We're all volunteers who go on these analog missions. Mm-hmm. And so we, we've picked up these, most of us, I think, have picked up these skills as we go along. Mm-hmm. Um, like I never thought um, I would be a, um, a guinea pig for a psychologist. Okay. Uh, and yet I've learned a bit about psychology since my uh, time in the Mars Society. Um, I've learned a hard, I never thought I'd learn how to shoot a gun until I went to the Arctic. And, uh, uh, we did training to be the, the bear guard. So the circumstances have created that. And um, you also have to realize that with only, say, six people on your crew, one person, you, you can't just be focused on one one task. You've got to be able to cook. You've got to be able to clean. You've got to be able to do basic maintenance. You've got to be able to uh, communicate, um, as well as doing you know, the thing you really like doing, whether it's engineering or, or uh, photography or geology or whatever. And for a real Mars mission, uh, you everyone will be formally trained in, in several skills as well as their main one. Um, because, for example, someone might get sick, and if uh, if your geologist geologist gets sick, um, other people have to know enough geology to go and complete their complete their task. If your doctor breaks her arm, the rest of the crew have got to know enough um, first aid and basic medicine to be able to. Um, deal with any illness or any injuries that come up until the doctors recovered. So crews will be cross-trained um, across the board as well as having their own specialization. And uh, so you would advise for, for anyone uh, maybe training or thinking of going to, to Mars to have these skills upfront, right? To be multidisciplinary upfront rather than try to learn them on the spot. Yes. I think that's. I mean, you may well pick up some things are there, but yeah, they, we will know what people need to do. So, for example, on the International Space Station, uh, Chris Hatfield wrote a, wrote a really good book about his time there. He said that the, the three main skills that everybody had to have, uh, they had to understand the robotics because there's a big robot arm on the space station and that does a lot of the outside tasks 
They've all got to understand that, all be able to, got to do that. They've all got to know how to look after the life support system because otherwise they'll all die. Mm-hmm. So they've got to be able to clean the toilet, to fix the toilet, to make sure the air keeps circulating, all this sort of stuff. And the third thing everybody's got to do is they've got to be able to go outside on um, do a spacewalk. Mm-hmm. And they've got to know how to use the spacesuits, how to work outside. They're the, the three basic skills that everybody has. And then in addition to that, they might have their research uh, skills or their engineering skills in a particular discipline. Yeah, it was, it's uh, quite interesting because, uh, I mean, you know, you've uh, you've uh, been here yeah, a long time and you've worked on normal, normal companies as well. Uh, nowadays, and now it's starting to shift, we are... We have only one skill, one profession, and then maybe uh, halfway through our lifetime, we realize, hey, maybe I would like to do something else, and then we start anew, which is not bad. But one mm. of the things I would support right now personally would be even for kids and to, to become multidisciplinary from the very beginning, right? Uh, get a hobby, do get proficient in it, or get a second thing you like and get uh, uh, not, not necessarily get a job in it, but be prepared to shift in that direction because shift will come. And then it's the same with... Uh, uh, that's, with very, that's very true. Mm-hmm. Uh, always try and keep yourself flexible. Like, you, know, you will end up with one or one or two major fields of strength, but always always try to you know, be interested in what other people do, and maybe you, you can end up doing that. Um, I mean, I, I never thought I'd actually seriously be doing space research, and then um, you know, this opportunity uh, has come up. And then... Um, a few years ago, I was unemployed because I was laid off from my work. And well, what do I do with my time? And I thought, well, I could go and volunteer at the local fire station. <laughs> and uh, so I became a, a volunteer firefighter. And uh, um, that's really interesting and uh, and challenging. And uh, you meet all sorts of uh, uh, interesting people. And uh, and yeah, and you get physically prepared as well for what you're doing right now. <laughs> yes, I mean, do you know if anybody? It's always good to do things that challenge you outside your comfort zone. And everyone's different. Some people, I might be just, you know, going on a boat is really challenging because they get seasick, or going in a plane. Other people, um, you know, it's more like rock climbing or parachuting. But yeah, everybody should. I think it's good if you can do things that take you outside your comfort zone. You learn new skills. You do things that you think you couldn't do, and. Uh, it, it helps with life in general because you learn how to how to deal with the unexpected, uh, which we never know when that'll happen. <laughs> so on analog stations, what takes you the most outside of your comfort zone? Is it the isolation? Is it the type of uh, going out there on EVAs, which are extravehicular activities? What what takes you out of your comfort zone most of the time? <laughs> The paperwork. <laughs> I did not expect that. So <laughs> I know. I didn't think you'd expect that. Well, as I said, I'm a geologist. I'm I'm used to working outside. I, I I'm used to working in remote areas of small groups of people. So that's part of what I do. Um, even though I'm a government worker servant, even though I've worked at university, uh, I really do not like the paperwork that that is necessary to make a Mars station run. You know, the daily reports, you've got to write every up all the time to keep mission control happy. You've got to read their reports. Uh, if something goes wrong, you've got to get all the instructions then how to fix it, then tell them that you've done it and so on. And it's necessary, but I really do not enjoy it. <laughs> 
So do you report it for um, research purposes? Do you report it just so they understand what's happening or both, I imagine? Well, a lot of it is just so, they, so that they know what's happening, that they can keep a track on supplies like food and water, um, uh, fuel you're using, uh, and so on. And so um, this is part of the, you know, the communication mm -hmm. uh, that you do. Uh, you're also writing things for, uh, you might be doing interviews, uh, and because when you're in a station, there's no real-time communication, unlike we have. So you've got to write things out and send it by email. And then, you know, the horrible editor at the other end says, well, no, I don't like what you wrote there. You've got to rewrite it and uh, and so on. And so um, I think uh, I kept a work diary when I was in Utah last time. And I think something like uh, it may be as much as a third of my working day was spent doing paperwork. So and, how, uh, how does you know, the yeah, schedule now? Now that gives me yeah to a question. How do how does does the schedule look like? So, out of twelve hours, three four hours is paperwork. What are the rest of uh, the twelve hours? All right. Well, uh, I, I've actually written this up as a paper, and I and I'm purely on my own my own day. Uh, but we we do a six day week. So you work six days, and then you take one day off where you just do your own stuff. You know, beyond what's absolutely necessary for the house. For the, for the habitat and so on. So um, there's cooking, there's housework. Housework never stops. So you've got to do cooking and washing up, you've got to do cleaning, uh, and that's you know roughly an hour, hour for each meal. Um, I mean, a person who cooks doesn't have to clean up, but someone's got to do it. So, you know, you roughly spend an hour per meal per person. Uh, there's... Um, Housework. I mean, particularly in, in Utah, it's a very dusty place. Dust comes in. You've got to be constantly sweeping it up. You've got to be vacuuming it. Um, you do maintain other maintenance. So you might be pumping water around so or, or collecting water. So in the Arctic, on pardon me, in Devon Island, every two or three days, you had to uh, go out with the quad bikes and jerry cans and fill them up with water. Uh, all the time with someone on guard would be out for the bears uh, and then bring them back and uh, pump them into the, the tanks on the station. In uh, in Utah, uh, there was a water supply there, but you still had to move it from the outside tank to the inside tank and uh, someone had to do that. Um, once every two or three days, you'd go on a, a Mars walk to do geology or engineering or astrobiology. Um, and that might take you know, anywhere between three and um, five or six hours. Uh, when you come back, you then got to process the samples. You've got to make sure they're properly labeled. You've got to make sure they're properly described. Um, you've got to uh, store them. Uh, you may well be doing experiments on them. Uh, the biologist, uh, Anushri, our Indian colleague, uh, she was doing culturing mm -hmm. of, of bacteria. Uh, so. You know, you have your outside work and almost the same amount of science work you do inside to, to write it up. Um, you have your housework, your maintenance, your cooking, uh, and then you've got all this wretched paperwork and, and administration you've got to do. So as I said, you're working anywhere between 11 and 12 hours um, a day, not counting meals. Wow, that's quite a lot. Do you get? Do you guys get time for yourselves, right? Not as a team, but uh, you, John, for John to think about what you're going through, reflect. Uh, yeah, just uh, 
get a bit of balance in your life or that doesn't really happen. You get to, you have to get used to this constant doing things, constant being yeah. inside with the, with the other five or six people. Well, I kept a diary. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a time to reflect. Um, I send emails. I send uh, daily emails to my wife. Um, there are a few other people, some uh, former colleagues of mine I kept in regular touch with. Uh, perhaps once, once every few weeks, I send them an email. Um, sometimes I'd even write back, which is amazing. Um, and, and with my children in the same way. Uh, so in communicating with people outside the station, that gives you a way of, of processing what's going on. In, in writing down your own experiences in your diary, that also allows you to um, to process it. I read a lot. Uh, I must have read about, you know, in Utah, for example, I must have read about um, uh, two books a week when I was there. I mean, e-readers are a great boon. Um, I read books about um, famous explorers. So when I was in the Arctic, I was reading about the great Norwegian explorer, um, Sverdrup, who had actually worked around Devon Island uh, over 100 years ago. And uh, people like uh, Nansen and Amundsen. Um, also, books that have nothing to do with living on Mars or whatever, just uh, murder mysteries or uh, uh, science fiction or um, uh, other, other traveling guides, uh, philosophy, theology, so on. Um, and usually at least once a week we would watch a movie together, and that was very nice. Other people are different ways. Our Canadian crewmate uh, in uh, in Utah, on his day off, he'd play video games, and uh, that was his thing. Um, our Russian colleague, uh, her favorite relaxation was to sit there and watch Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> and she'd, sort of, she'd lie there in a bunk with a big beer, with her headphones on and a big smile on her face watching Kung, Kung Fu Panda. Yeah, but she, <laughs> obviously, it's very much a favorite movie. So everybody has their own. Nice. So is there, did it ever happen in any of the teams you've been with on anything you've heard that someone would just say, Hey, this is too much for me. I cannot live in isolation. I cannot do this kind of field work. I don't have enough me time. Uh, and then they just gave up or it doesn't really happen. I've seen that on one or two other shorter expeditions. Um, what drives it them? didn't happen on uh, the two big ones I've been talking about simply because we all knew what we're letting ourselves in for uh, and uh, we're all experienced. And if that happens, I mean, everybody has a meltdown sometimes. Uh, as we say in Australia, everyone sometimes feels like they have to spit the dummy. You ever heard that expression? No, it's the first time. <laughs> all right. We've all seen babies, mm -hmm. right? And sometimes little babies get really, really angry and they yell and scream and wriggle and go red in the face and uh, you know, the poor mother or the poor father gets a dummy, you know, a thing you put in a baby's yes. mouth and you put it in the baby's mouth and the baby goes, Hur! Yes. It's okay. so angry, it just spits the dummy. It's the expression. <laughs> but there's, there's two things. Um, I mean, first of all, good planning, mm -hmm. both, you know, large-scale structure or things like workload. Uh, you make sure you have a day off. It's very good. Make sure that, okay, sure, you're working 11, 12 hours a day, but don't try and work 14, 16 hours a day routinely. Um, and people being patient and nice and kind to, to each other. Um, 
generally can avoid that. And, you know, if someone has a meltdown, okay, you know, you know we'll, we'll, we'll leave you to your cabin for a bit. Um, we'll just check on you in a little while to see, make sure you're okay. I mean, on one of our trips, we had um, someone who was having a lot of issues. Their daughter was uh, um, not very well, and that was a source of, of stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, we helped them along, and uh, we all came out of it okay. So, again, you know, the, the human virtues of kindness and uh, forgiveness and uh, care for each other really what are what makes the difference. I guess why I was interested is uh, more if someone wants to do this and they just don't have the skills, right? In my view, it's just better to stay and uh, add value on earth rather than try to do something maybe you're not able to do. So in my mind was yeah. what what would make people fail on such missions? Mm. Who, what would be the things that you definitely need to have, right? We were discussing right now about the things maybe you need to avoid, or if you don't have those skills, just better stay and add value on earth rather than try to do something that you'll fail at. Mm. Well, well, the thing to remember is, uh, you know, if, if we take uh, the Apollo program as a guide, you know, 24 people went to the moon mm-hmm. during Apollo, right? But there were something like 400,000 people who worked on the program. Well, uh, I mean, there were you know, PhD engineers and scientists. There were the uh, little old ladies in the brass factory mm-hmm. that built the spacesuits. Uh, there was the, the cleaners who, who made sure that people had a clean office to work in. There were the security guards who yeah. kept out the, the rubberneckers. There was the, uh, there was, there was the artists and the journalists. I mean, there was, Room for even for the accountants and the managers. They, you know, whatever your skills are, yeah, there's something for for you in the goal of getting people to Mars. And uh, there's thousands for every person who'll ever go to Mars. There'll be thousands, tens of thousands of people are going uh, to work working, on. going to work to make sure that happens. So then you, you then all the stuff comes back, and the people work on the the images and the data and the rocks and and all the other uh, samples for material for years and years to come. So, uh, look, if you're not someone who likes living and working in closed spaces or you don't don't like working in dangerous environments, that's fine. Yeah, there's something else for you to do. And uh, so I think that's first. Uh, that's the first thing. And, uh, you know, the old philosophical thing, know yourself, know what you can do, know what you can't do, and, you know, work out perhaps the things you thought you couldn't do, which you can do as well. Yeah, and hopefully this uh, would give people a bit of a an idea of what you need to be, how you need to be built, what kind of skills you need to have, what you need to develop, so you can get on such uh, missions. John, what yeah. makes a preparatory mission, analog mission, a success or not, or do do you define it as a successful or not? Well, like pretty well everything in life, you know, planning and preparation prevents poor performance. Mm-hmm. What's poor yeah, performance in such a mission and what's good performance? Well, uh, so for example, yeah, for every for every month, oh, I'll backtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've currently got this crew at MDRS, a group of Australians uh, who are there for four weeks. Um, it's taken over a year of planning and preparation for that. 
Yeah, it was find, you know, finding the crew, working out how long we're going to be there, uh, working out what they were going to do, uh, Ray working out the funding for that. Um, and um, a whole lot of, uh, because these people, I mean, some were from one side of the country, uh, and others from other sides of the country. Uh, one person is actually from New Zealand. Um, just having constant communications, be it on, on Zoom or be it by uh, phone or be it by email, so that even if people have never met each other before, uh, they've got some idea of what the other person is like. And uh, that's all part of the planning and preparation. So in doing that, that generally is what makes something successful. Uh, people end up having a, an understanding of who people are, having a common vision, an understanding of the goals, and people can then make it work. I mean, the worst thing you want to do is get a bunch of random people, throw them together and say, right, you know, live in that tuna can for, for four weeks and uh, hopefully, hopefully one or two of you come out at the end relatively sane. I mean, that's the worst thing you could do. Yeah. <laughs> so perfect yeah, perfect planning and preparation prevents pathetically poor performance. And uh, when you talk about goals, do you have goals like uh, how many EVAs uh, you should have in an amount of uh, time, uh, how much, uh, I don't know, uh, microbiology research you should do and what would be, how, how does goals sound like? What's, what's a goal? Well, we, we have for the, uh, the ex current exhibition, we had a, a daily plan, which was worked out ahead beforehand, uh, which everyone worked out. We worked out together. It wasn't just one or two people's ideas. It was a, a group idea, a group plan. Um, several people had been to MDRS before, and so they also knew that you got to be uh, – it's so good planning, and then it pours of rain. And in Utah, if it rains for half a day, uh, you basically can't go outside for the next two days because it's just so muddy. So you've got to have room in there for unexpected things. And if it's raining or if it's snowing, well, okay, you just don't do it. And no point complaining about it. It's just the way it is. You know, have a have a backup plan. And um, yeah, planning planning like that is really really helpful. Okay, so you do have a, a daily plan. You do have things that you ha must do, and then if not, you will you will get back uh, on track. Now, yes. do you think? How big of a difference do you think is between the simulations, the analog missions you are doing, and the actual going to Mars and the missions there? Do you think that you're covering around 70%, 80%, or 40%, and the rest would be unexpected on Mars? Did you ever think of that? Or I don't know. Was there research done on that? Yeah. that that's very hard to... Um, to describe accurately. Uh, and rather, and really, it's something. It's something that that certainly should be done, but it's hard to quantify. Uh, several people who have been um, at MDRS, for example, um, have gone on to do very high level uh, simulation work. So, for example, um, there's a facility at the Institute of Biomedical Problems in Moscow. Uh, where people spend uh, months at a time or even a year, year or more um, doing a simulated mission. Mm -hmm. So someone um, who was at MDRS about uh, 12 years ago as part of the Mars, Mars 500 experiment, a European, uh, a European uh, researcher. Uh, one of the people, the Russian woman is on, on our crew at MDRS and, and in the Arctic, 
this year was in the four-month Sirius experiment mm -hmm. at IBMP. Uh, and um, certainly the experience was valuable for that. Um, one thing, of course, that you can't simulate on any of these stations that would be a reality on Mars or on the moon uh, is, you know, really being uh, inside somewhere where you can't go out. I mean, if worst comes to the worst, you know, people can open the airlock and leave. Uh, on Mars, you can't do that. Uh, on the moon, you can't do that. You can't simulate that. Um, it's a very much a, a low-tech system, so you're not really simulating the, the highly sophisticated life support systems or power generation systems there. But we would like to think that the operational procedures the, the, uh, that we have, the daily schedules we have, um, do prepare us for uh, what in terms of experience, in terms of the issues that come up, or what needs to be done on Mars. Um, and certainly, um, work that's been done um, on other analog expeditions, uh, people have compared it with what happens on, say, the space station and so on. Uh, it does seem to work. Uh, it does seem to uh, move across. You are allowed to extrapolate. You can extrapolate from one to the other. Okay, that's uh, that's good to hear. Uh, John, I've read, I think it was a post about uh, two or three days ago on the Mars Society in the US that you are working, started to work with educators right now to train them on what's what's needed and the skills and everything that are needed to go to Mars so they can go back to their schools, uh, their the institutions and then teach kids, right, uh, on, on their turn. Besides this, is there anything happening in education so people are more prepared to making this step or yes. any, any uh, so that, so yeah, that, yeah, we could. So that's something that's been done. That's a NASA initiative mm -hmm. called uh, space would bound. Uh, this was started up oh, about 15 years ago okay. through NASA Ames, people like Chris McKay uh, uh, and others uh, where you take teachers. So there are two components. You, you take teachers out into the field, and get them to work alongside scientists and engineers, planetary and space scientists and engineers um, on projects so they can take, gather ideas and take them back to their students at school. Mm -hmm. And um, these have been run uh, for many years now uh, in many parts of the world. So, for example, they've gone to Dubai. Uh, they've often gone to MDRS. They've gone to Pavilion Lakes in Canada. Uh, we've run several in Australia. Uh, and uh, and hundreds of teachers have gone through this, uh, teachers in the U.S., from Canada, from Latin America, from Europe, from Australia, New Zealand, uh, and, uh, uh, and in India uh, and um, other countries as well. And... Um, yeah, the, the, it's hard to calculate the impact of this. These students go back and these teachers go back and they've worked with, with hundreds of students about um, what space means to them, what space might mean to the students, what mm -hmm. careers that they might, might be able to pursue in that. You know, what the vision of knowing that our Earth is a small, fragile planet in the cosmos and, and uh, why we must look after it. Um, Does it it's help? It's incalculable, but do I'm sure, see, I'm sure it has any... a major effect. 
Do you see any impact? Do you see maybe more people applying or volunteering to help uh, in Australia with the Mars Society? Do you see more people going and studying uh, in universities so you can have a bigger pool to choose from? Do you see any sort of impact? Um, certainly, we yeah we have played a small role in, but a, a small part in making space research and space activities acceptable in Australia. Uh, for when Mars Society Australia started, there wasn't a space program in this country. There was actually a lot of official hostility to doing anything other than buying services from satellites uh, in space. Uh, just over two years ago, we actually set up for the first time a space agency in this country. And um, now, uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, the um, it's become possible for people to actually officially start working in terms of human space flight and planetary exploration. And so you know, our role has been very small in that, but I think we have been part of that. If you look at the people who have gone to the um, Mars Desert Research Station, uh, when that first started in 2002, uh, there are only four or five crews going there uh, every year. And now there are... 20 or so crews okay. that go there every year. Um, 20 years ago, nearly 20 years ago, when it first started, they had to go out and recruit people to work there, just so, you know, Mars Society members, a few people who work for NASA and so on. Now there is a two-year waiting list for people to go and work Okay, so that's a good sign. That, that seems like there's an it's impact. It's a huge sign. Mm -hmm. um, and they could, they could run it. Right, all year round, um, if they um, if they had the the resources and the staff to do it, as it is, it runs for six months of the year, um, and even then, there's a two year waiting list, and two thirds of the people apply, they knock back. That's so, uh, that's good. Yeah, when, that's very good. Can and companies, there have been other sorry. stations set up all over the world to do this sort of stuff. There's two in China now. There's one in Poland. Uh, there's one uh, high seas in, in Hawaii. Uh, people are looking at doing stations like this in Australia, in India, in, in potentially in Dubai. Some are very research focused. Um, others are more sort of space camp type focus for children. Um, but they show there's enormous, it's an enormous and growing market and interest in this sort of work. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. I mean, for the first time in human history, we actually have a chance of getting out there. So, uh... It should get a bit of traction. Uh, John, yeah, yeah. could companies, private companies, public companies do something to help with this, to promote and hone the skills that, that are needed to go to space? Yes. Uh, so, for example, um, companies, a number of companies have used these facilities for their own research. So, for example, I know at MDRS uh, there have been uh, in addition to all the uh, all the uh, space agencies, um, you know, NASA, European Space Agency, IBMP in Moscow, um, uh, and so on, have have used MDRS and other facilities for their own research. Uh, companies like Lockheed Martin and Boeing have sent people to these stations or allowed their people to go to gain experience there. Um, certainly, uh, Elon Musk has uh, generously supported a number of the facilities at MDRS, like the solar the solar um, power system, and one of the observatories there. So there certainly is a company interest uh, in these. Uh, 
do they help? So besides their interest, besides gaining something out of it, hmm. is there help well, coming and can they do something yeah. to support you rather than just, yeah, <laughs> collect? Well, they paid, they pay to go there, so that helps. Okay. But also, so for example, we look at the, the, the solar panels, but a lot of the equipment at, uh, at, uh, at MDRS uh, is a result of donations from the Musk Foundation or uh, uh, from, uh, from Elon himself personally. So th there, is, there is interest there. Um, sometimes odd, uh, odd places people supported it. Um, IKEA uh, has uh, fitted out the interior of MDRS. I mean, uh, by you know, providing the sort of furniture that we need and the other flat pack furniture on Mars. Um, uh, some companies have used uh, these stations for advertising. Mm -hmm. you know, there's, um, I think there was a, a uh, was it might have been either Land Rover or Mercedes actually filmed a, an ad outside MDRS, and of course they pay for this privilege, but also. Uh, it's good PR for the it's, Mars it's Society. Good, exactly, too, it's good PRs for the Mars Society as well. It's, yeah. uh, it helps both. So everybody's happy. Mm -hmm. Perfect. <laughs> Any, anything that you would like to tell people who are maybe afraid and think of going to Mars is something very scary? Maybe, well, okay, I don't want to be on the first uh, crew that goes to Mars, I will die on the way or anything. Uh, yeah. What will happen if uh, I need to get out and I cannot, there's no, uh, it, it, there will be, there are hazards, many hazards about going to Mars. Um, I think through testing and planning and choosing the right people, we can turn, we can make the risk of those hazards smaller, uh, small enough to make it worthwhile. Uh, but every everything that we do as people has a risk involved. And um, every great achievement of, of, um, of civilization has, whether it's building, uh, building a cathedral or creating a work of art has, uh, or exploring a new frontier, has a degree of risk uh, to it. If, we, if we're not prepared to take a risk on board, we, we might as well stay at home. And um, uh, and the risk, of course, doesn't have to mean danger. It can be um, a risk of uh, uh, a financial risk. Uh, it could be a risk of people thinking you're nuts. You know, in my case, no, you go and pretend you live on Mars. You must be crazy. Um, it may be a, a risk of... Um, your career not working out because you choose to do something which then turns out to be a failure. Um, but you have to be prepared to take a degree of risk to achieve anything uh, in life, whether it's going to Mars or going on holiday. True. Uh, John, if people want to find out more about Mars, uh, the Mars station, the MDRS, the F-Mars, yes. what's the best place for resources? Because I've seen a quote, well, but what are, what's the best place? Both these stations have uh, websites. Mm -hmm. uh, they both have Facebook pages. So the U.S. Mars Society's um, uh, website and the FMARS and MDRS websites and uh, the Mars Society, MDRS, and FMARS Facebook pages are good places to uh, to start. Um, and, I will and of course, sure there's I will a lot of very them. good. Sorry, I will make sure I will link them in uh, in the yeah. description. 
Um, I think there there are. I mean, if you want to explore Mars by yourself, uh, Google Earth has a Mars page. You know, you can actually uh, open Google Earth and you click on a little icon at the top that's sort of a, a planet with rings, and you can go from there. You can go to Google Mars and you can look at all sorts of images of Mars from different space missions. Oh, I didn't um, know that. I will, yeah, I will have a look. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, so you know, let, let me I'll open mine. I mean, this this is as um, it's just the standard standard Google Earth, not Google Earth Pro or anything. Um, come on, chug chug chug. Up the top, uh, there's a list of little like there's a line of icons, and one of them is sort of like Saturn. Uh, you can see a, a little orange planet with rings around it. And you click on that, and, and uh, a drop-down box will come up for Earth, Moon, and Mars, and the sky. And you just go on. You click on the Earth one, uh, or the sorry, the Mars one, and uh, you can get maps. You can get uh, uh, images from various uh, space missions, uh, and there's also information there about different things as well, just like there is a normal Google Earth. So that's great. Oh, perfect! I'll have a look as well and share it with uh, with everyone. John, I know it's uh, late for you. I think it's already 9 p.m. there, something like that. Uh, 8.30. 8.30. I but think it's been a long day. It's Yes. I thank you very, very much for agreeing to do this podcast, but also for doing all this crazy pioneering work. I think it's really, really important, and it's really nice that someone gets us prepared to actually be able to do something that we can do. Well, so thank, well uh, thank you. It's and wonderful. It's, look, it brings its own reward because it's just it's just something I really enjoy doing. And thank you so much. You should see if you can go. You could go to MDRS. I mean, they um, they're putting out they put out a call for volunteers uh, for next year. Okay. I mean, you, you could you could go and and you would be yeah. the on the spot reporter. I would uh, I would love to do that actually. Seriously, yeah, you should, you should uh, yes. do that. Yes. It's, uh, There's even been a Romanian crew there. Okay. Yeah, several several years ago. Okay, I didn't I didn't notice the Romanian crew among all of this because I did read more mostly about your uh, missions, but um, yeah. I will have a look. Uh, so you so you should go look. I, I can really recommend it. And look, if it, if it turns out to be really hard, it's only two weeks. You can survive anything for two weeks. I agree. And it's just uh, yeah, proving your skills and getting better. As I think Anushri had in one of her reports, what's happening is that you just rise. It's, you just grow. Yeah. And Anushri is an amazing, uh, an amazing person. I mean, she, she, she is someone who really, you know, went well and truly beyond her comfort zone to achieve the mission. Um, uh, so I've got a mom. Yeah. Quite an incredible lady. Yeah, I think you're all incredible guys for doing this. A bit yeah. crazy, a bit incredible, and, and look, a mix. <laughs> yeah, and look, if you go to MDRS, I mean, the landscape there is just so mind-blowingly beautiful. I mean, it's a classic Western U.S. landscape of mesas and and buttes and uh, red rocks, and uh, it's just you know, a big sky. It's just just absolutely amazing. I will keep you posted. I'll have a look, and I will keep you posted. Why not? All right. Cool. <laughs> John, thank you so, so much. Enjoy your Saturday evening. Enjoy your weekend. And thank you for all the great thank work you. you're doing.
All right. Yeah. And we'll keep in touch. Keep in touch, John. Take care. Thank you. Right. Bye. Good, bye, bye. Good night. Good night.